0: Father, we are grateful to be here together with you, with one another. We are grateful for our brothers and sisters who have led us this morning in singing. We are grateful for our brothers and sisters who have welcomed us this morning with hugs, with asking how we are, with a smile. Uh, lord, with their presence. God we thank you that you have made your church, and we thank you that you've made this church. and we thank you that we get to be a part of it. and so lord, we we ask that you would speak to us through your word, and that you would make us more faithful individually, as your sons and daughters, uh, as disciples of you, that you would make us more faithful to our calling. And God, I pray that together as a church that through your word that you would uh, bind us together and make us of one heart and one mind uh, so that we can do your will together here in this city. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning we are are finishing up uh, our time in the book of Ephesians. And we're going to be uh, talking about... uh, This thing that Paul talks about at the end of his book about this spiritual battle that we all face. And I want to give you a bit of a heads up that at the end of my sermon today, we are going to spend some time praying together. There's going to be an immediate opportunity uh, to apply the sermon today. Uh, We are going to come together um, in prayer, which is uh, one of our main spiritual weapons in this battle that we fight that we're going to be talking about today. So in the first half of Ephesians, Paul has told us about this work that God has done in the heavenly places, that God in the heavenly places has raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms. He has taken those of us who were dead in our sins, we were spiritually flatlined, unresponsive to God, and he made us alive again. He tells us in that first half of Ephesians that God reconciled us to God. And he reconciled us to one another. And he even reconciled you to you. You to your own self. He brought groups of people together that were previously divided and brought them together in the gospel. And Paul says that God has brought us together in the church and then has given us this high calling to be a demonstration to the world, even a demonstration to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places of God's eternal purpose and plan. That's the first half of Ephesians. The second half of Ephesians, Paul tells us very practically how to live that out. What does it look like to live out this high calling, to be a demonstration to the world, and even to the spiritual beings in the heavenly places of God's eternal plan? What does that look like? And in the last half of Ephesians, Paul describes what that looks like. And into the last couple of chapters, Ephesians 5 and 6, and I would encourage you to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 5 and 6. Paul gives some instructions about the most intimate relationships that we have in our, our lives. Our relationships between husband and wife, relationships with, between parents and children, and also relationships between, um, as described in Ephesians in their time, slaves and, and masters. Paul knows that it's in these intimate relationships where the battle for likeness is lived out. It's in these relationships where we are going to be most challenged to be kind. It's in these relationships where we're going to be most challenged to love our neighbor. It's in these relationships where we're going to be most challenged to act like Jesus. It's in these relationships where it's the hardest to forgive. Because the wounds of those uh, given to us by those who are closest to us, the wounds caused by those who are closest to us are the ones that hurt the most. Right? Right? And so they're the hardest to forgive. And so it's after these instructions that Paul gives about these relationships between uh, wives and husbands and children and parents and slaves and masters, it's after these instructions, these relationships that are so familiar to us, that he then begins talking about this spiritual battle that we are fighting. I'd like to read uh, from Ephesians 6, uh, starting at verse 10. And I'd like to ask for you to stand as we read this morning. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Thank you. You may be seated. So right after giving these instructions about our most intimate and challenging relationships, Paul says that what you and I need to know is that there is a spiritual battle raging all around you. And it's your life, your relationships, the unity of the church, and your very own soul that is the battlefield. Paul tells us we have an enemy. And this enemy is... The enemy, Our enemy in this battle wants to steal and to kill and to destroy your life and your relationships in whatever way that he can. And the enemy in this battle wants nothing more than to take the unity that you have experienced through Christ that Paul describes in the first half of Ephesians. That unity that you experience between uh, God and yourself and between other people and even your own self. He wants to take that unity and he wants to divide and destroy it again. Paul finishes this letter by telling us that we must be aware that we are in a very spiritual battle, a battle between God and the spiritual powers of evil that exist in the world. And so if we are going to fight this battle, then we must know our enemy. We have to know that we have an enemy. Throughout Ephesians and in other parts of his letters, Paul talks about these spiritual powers and authorities and rulers in the heavenly places. And a couple months back, I, I talked a bit about what Paul means by these spiritual powers and authorities. You know, we, we sometimes have this common image of uh, of Satan or of demons. You know, the the horns and the the hoofed feet and the tail. I'm not sure where that came from. Does anyone know? I, I actually just finished reading um, Dante's Inferno, and I thought that it came from that, but it doesn't. It's not in there either. So I don't know where this image came from, but it's really stuck in our consciousness, right? Like this idea of this Satan, this devil, this demon. But when Paul talks about these spiritual forces, what he often describes are these powers in our world that influence us in one way or another. And they are related to worldviews and philosophies and ideologies that motivate human beings to act in certain ways, very often without us knowing it or being very aware of it. And what we learn in Paul's letters is that these powers and authorities in the heavenly places, they can either serve Christ or they can be against Christ. And when they serve Christ, that leads to unity and to peace and toward the common good of people. But when they reject Christ and when human beings follow those powers and when uh, they, they follow those rulers and authorities that reject Christ, it always ends up badly for us. And so when Paul talks about these spiritual beings, he sometimes talks about them as, as a force or a power or an influence, in human, uh, an influence that impacts our human life, both as individuals as well as in society as a whole, both in good ways and in evil ways, And Paul is very clear that these powers in some way, not exactly in the way that we as humans do, but in some way have consciousness. They have personality. They make decisions. They are observing us. And so the Bible talks about these spiritual beings, and in this room today, there's probably some of you who have very different views about these spiritual beings that I'm talking about today. There's, there's kind of two poles that we can, we can find ourselves in. On one hand, it's to not believe that they exist at all, to simply deny that they exist. And the other is to kind of see them behind every good or bad thing that ever happens. And in our modern world today, it's pretty common for people to simply deny that these spiritual beings exist at all. But there's also others who just kind of see angels and demons around every bush, and everything that happens, we can attribute to those things. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, says... There we go. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which we can fall about demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And the demons themselves are equally pleased by both errors. So I want to talk a little bit about both of these views. Both of these extremes. Uh, Life in the modern world is characterized by a denial of all spiritual realities, especially the idea of any personal, angelic, or demonic realities. One of the primary characteristics of the worldview in the modern West is that all things can be explained by what we can see and touch. By what we can observe, what we can experiment with. It's a view that everything that exists, everything that is real, can be seen and touched and observed by human beings. And if we can't see and touch it, then it must not exist. Everything can be explained scientifically, we can measure and observe it. There are scientists that, that even sometimes explain the human experience of love, of love as merely the result of synapses in our brain firing in a certain way. I find that so unsatisfying (laughs) to explain this experience that we have of love. If we're going to have a biblical view of reality, we must pay attention to what the scriptures say about this spiritual and immaterial world that Exists and that intersects with our world and that influences our world in all sorts of ways In many, most of the time that we're very unaware of. We may not fully understand those spiritual beings. Certainly we don't understand them very well. But to deny their existence is to deny what the Bible says about the reality of the world that we live in. The Bible is clear that we do have a spiritual enemy. The Bible gives him a name, Satan, or accuser. He's called the devil. He's called the serpent. He is real and he hates you. And he wants nothing more than to destroy your life and your relationships. He wants to destroy your relationship with God. He wants to destroy the most important relationships that you have, especially your relationship with God. And so if we don't recognize our enemy. If we simply go along with the, the, the reigning worldview that uh, we live in here in the modern West, we will go about like a boxer boxing the air. We're going to fight battles that we don't need to fight, and we're going to lose relationships that we don't need to lose. And we need to, so we need to live in the reality of what the Bible says about our enemy. He is real. On the other hand, I want to say that there is a way that some Christians just give Satan way too much credit. Way too much credit. I want to give you a couple examples. First is when we blame the devil for our own sin. If Satan and demons were completely annihilated today, you would sin tomorrow. It is true that Satan, the serpent in the garden, did introduce the possibility of sin and evil into our world in the beginning. But since then, sin and evil are realities that dwell in here, in us. And because of that, we are always responsible for our own sin and our own actions. In fact, we don't even need Satan to be tempted Our own flesh is tempted on its own, apart from any sort of intervention from any spiritual beings. This is what the book of James says. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by what? Their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. As James describes how temptation and sin works in our life, is is Satan or a devil or a demon mentioned here at all? No. We are dragged away by our own evil desires, and we will move towards those desires just fine without any help. The second way I think that we often give Satan too much credit is when we blame Satan for all of the suffering or trials in our life or in the world. Again, there is some sense in which Satan is at the source of suffering in the world, but that's a very shallow way to understand our suffering and the way that pain and suffering works itself out in our lives. When we see suffering or pain only as some work from Satan, we will always run away from it, we will always fight it, we will always avoid it in whatever way that we can. But the Bible is clear that our suffering can be very, very useful to God. While while he may not be the cause of that, he uses it for our good if we will let him. Both God and Satan have purposes in your pain and in your suffering. Satan wants to use that pain and suffering to steal and to kill and to destroy you. God wants to use that pain and suffering in your life to bring honesty and wholeness and sanctification and true abundant life to you. And God will use that suffering in your life to bring that about if you will allow him to. Our pain and our suffering is very useful to God if we allow him to use it. So I wanted to give a a bit of a picture today to to maybe help explain a little bit of um, what I'm trying to communicate here about. Satan's work in our life. Um, This is your life. Doesn't look very exciting, but this is your life. And in our life we have these moments, maybe sometimes moments of sin where we fall, where we do something that we know um, is against God's plan for us. Or we may have moments of, of pain or suffering. And I think when we think about satan's work in our life and the way that our enemy works against us we usually think about him coming in on the scene right here right before it happens whether that means the temptation that lured us into it or that he somehow arranged certain things so that we would suffer and maybe that's true in some way But I want to suggest to you that the way that Satan uses uh, works most of the time is not before, but during and after. But during and after. Satan does his most damaging work after our sin, or during and after that initial moment of pain and suffering. It's then when he comes in as the accuser. And tells you, you are not loved. It's then that he comes in and says, you are not worthy. That thing that you did is unforgivable. You did it again. How could God ever love you? You will never, ever stop doing this. You got it? Or maybe after a season of suffering, he comes and he causes you to doubt the goodness of God in your life. If God is real, how could he ever allow that to happen to you? If God is loving, how could he have allowed you or other people to go through that kind of pain? Or maybe after a a conflict with someone that you love, he comes in and he says, That relationship isn't worth it. Be done with it. It's too hard. Just give up. The most dangerous work that Satan does, he is most active in our lives, I think, not right before the sin, not right before the suffering, but right after it. Where he comes and he tries to steal all of our joy and our hope in the Lord. Does that make sense? Because the truth is, it's in the seasons after we fall, or after or during our pain and our suffering, it's in those moments where God wants to do the most profound work in our lives. It's there in that moment of pain, or after our sin, where he wants to make very real to us his mercy and his grace and his love. And it's then, if we allow him to, that our pain and our suffering become very useful to him. So let's be careful to not give Satan more credit than he deserves. But we also need to believe what the Bible says about our enemy. The Bible says we have an enemy and he hates you. He wants to destroy your life. He wants to destroy your relationships. He wants to destroy the unity of our church He wants to destroy your soul. So as we talk about this very real battle, I I want us to talk about making sure that we fight the right battle, and I also want to make sure that we are fighting the right battle in the right way. In this passage, Paul says that our battle is not against flesh and blood. In other words, your enemy is never, ultimately, another person. Your battle is not against flesh and blood. Your enemy is never ultimately another person. And I think this is a pretty amazing thing for the Apostle Paul especially to say. Because if you know anything about the history of Paul's life, you will know that the physical resistance and physical suffering that he endured because of his faith was really unparalleled. In Paul's life, he was whipped, he was spit upon, he was put in prison, he was stoned, he was insulted because of his faith in Christ. So Paul, what do you mean? Wasn't it human beings that were whipping you? Wasn't it human beings that were stoning you? Wasn't it human beings that put you in prison? So what do you mean that our battle is not against flesh and blood? What Paul says is flesh and blood are real, and they can be very evil. But what he is saying is that whenever we experience some suffering or some conflict with another person, when somebody is coming against us, that there is something else going on. Something deeper and even more terrible than meets the eye. There is a deeper spiritual reality behind and around that person and in the context of this relationship. And if we do not recognize that, and if we do not fight the battle with those spiritual realities in mind, then we will never win. If we believe that that person, if we believe that flesh and blood are our enemy, we will never win the real battle. Because your enemy is not the person that is rejecting you or harming you or insulting you. Your enemy is not the politician that you dislike. It's not the person in your office who is against you. It's not your your husband or your wife. Your real enemy is not the person, it's not flesh and blood, but the rulers and authorities of the spiritual world. Your battle is against sin, and that sin is in you just as much as it is in that other person. The battle we fight is a spiritual battle. So how does this work itself out? I want to give you just some tangible, everyday experiences for us to think about. You and I find ourselves in conflict with other people every once in a while, right? It's kind of part of the human experience. We want to approach our conflicts with one another biblically. We will recognize that we are not one another's enemy. And that the goal in that conflict, whatever it is, is not for me to win and for the other person to lose. But for both of us to destroy the sin that is in both of our hearts it's very easy for us to forget our enemy, to forget that our enemy is not this person in front of us, but instead that the enemy is the sin in my own heart, and the enemy is Satan who wants to destroy this relationship. It's no accident that right after Paul gives his instructions to Christian households, husbands and wives, children and parents, it's no accident that Paul then launches into this discussion about this spiritual battle. When we start thinking about angels and demons, it's really easy to start thinking like these epic, spiritual, huge battles. And it is an epic battle, but the battle is happening in the context of your very boring life, okay? Paul moves from the language of these common, everyday, mundane relationships, Directly into talking about this spiritual battle that we fight. And it really feels even jolting a little bit if you just read through that chapter. But Paul is saying that your common, everyday life is not beside the point. It is the point. It is the battleground. Your relationship with God, your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with that friend that is breaking, your relationship with your brother and sister in Christ, this is where the real battle takes place. Your discipleship, your following of Jesus takes place mostly in these common everyday relationships. Most of our life is not going to be lived in this kind of epic spiritual world where you know we're kind of like on a forever short-term mission trip or something. Most of our life is not going to be lived at church camp. Most of our life is not going to be lived at church. And if you talk to, to overseas missionaries who's on the, who are on the field, After the novelty of a new place wears off, and after the kind of the adventure of it all wears off, the hard spiritual battle is still in those relationships with people. Many people, many of us want to do great things for God, however we want to define that. But Paul says that the great things for God are done in these common everyday relationships that all of us experience. So if we're going to experience victory in the battle, we have to make sure that we are fighting the right battle in the first place. And again, the battle is with the sin and evil that is present in us and in that relationship. So so I just want you to just imagine for a moment. What what if my main objective in, in every conflict that I was in, if my main goal and my main objective was to discover... The very hidden and quiet and subtle evil that's in my heart, rather than uncovering the very obvious sin and evil in the heart of the other person. That's what we do, right? We want to make sure that they know all of the things that they've done. But what if we turn that around? And our main objective, our main goal became how is it in this conflict? In this relationship right now, how can God reveal to me the very subtle and crooked parts of my own heart? And then what if, what if we could do that together? What if in the middle of an argument we stopped and went, wait a second here, and we turned and faced the enemy together? If we could realize in that moment together that the real enemy, the one who hates us, the one whose goal it is, is it for this relationship to be broken? If together we could somehow turn our attention and focus together toward that real enemy, if that happened, victory would be sure. It would be sure. Now, I don't want to say in any way that this is an easy shift to make. It's not. It's impossible, in fact, without faith. But if we believe what the Bible says about reality, then we have to see that it is a shift that we have to make if we're going to actually see victory over sin in our life and reconciliation in our relationships. So, we need to make sure that we are always fighting the right battle. We are not fighting against flesh and blood. The person in front of us is not our real enemy. And we also need to fight the right way. We need to fight the right way. And first of all, I want to say that we need to fight always together with other believers and not alone. The image that Paul gives here of of armor and the image that he would have had uh, in his own mind was the image of of the, the armor of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire of the day, one of the the geniuses, genius of their uh, military um, endeavors was that their armor was intentionally designed to be used together in concert with one another. And if you've ever seen like the opening scene from Gladiator, Um, I was going to show it, but (laughs) a little rough. But it's really great in that, you know, they're fighting these... um, there's, they're fighting these barbarians. And as the barbarians come down and fight against them, they're all like wild and by themselves. They're like running down this hill and they're all individual. They're, there's, no, there's, no, there's no unity. There's no cohesion. They're just all like running. And, and the Roman army is standing there together with all of their shields. And the shield of one is not only protecting them, but it's also protecting the man next to them. And as they stand, and as those barbarians hit them, they just stop because they're all standing there together. And I think that sometimes when we think about the, the armor of God, we have this idea of the medieval knight who's in, you know, who's in the, uh, the tournament fighting by himself. That is not the armor that Paul would have had in mind. He would have had in mind, this armor of the, the Roman Empire that was designed specifically to be used to fought with, be fought together with other people. Is a soldier a great soldier if he fights battles alone? What defines a great soldier is not some ability to fight a battle alone, but it's his ability to fight with his brothers his ability to follow the instructions of his commander and then to work together with others. That's what defines a good soldier. The moment a soldier goes it alone, he dies. And other people will probably die too. We would never ever go into a physical battle by ourselves. And we would never expect a soldier to go into some a battle by themselves. We would not think that person is a coward because they went with their brothers, would we? And yet, somehow, we've come to believe that we should fight our spiritual battles alone. We've come to believe that somehow that if we ask for help, if we ask for support, if we need someone to pick up our sword because we've dropped ours, or if we need someone else's shield of faith for a little while because my faith just can't muster it anymore, if we think that's somehow a sign of weakness, and it's not. Whatever spiritual battle you are going through, whether it is depression or conflict in your marriage or grief or lack of faith, or if you just keep falling over and over and over and over again with a particular sin, if you are doing that by yourself without help, you will continue to fail. Without reaching out to another brother or sister, you are trying to win a battle with power that you do not possess by yourself. And it's not weakness to reach out. It's foolishness to not reach out. To confess your sin, to ask for prayer, to ask to talk. If you need an hour for someone to sit with you and listen to you and to help bear your burden, do it. It's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of wisdom. It's a sign of knowing who your real enemy is. And knowing where your real strength lies. And it's not in you. It's in Christ and in the community that he has given to you. I mean, listening to Paul's own letters, you know, this great hero of the faith, this giant of the faith, you read his letters and you just hear over and over and over again how much these relationships mean to him. 1 Thessalonians 2:17 and 20 but brothers when we were torn away from you for a short time out of our intense longing we made an effort to see you for we wanted to come to you certainly I Paul did again and again but Satan stopped us for which is for what is our hope and our joy and our crown in which we will all glory in the presence of Jesus when he comes it's you you are our glory and our joy To his friend Timothy, he writes, Night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. And we see also hints in his letters at those times when some of his brothers abandoned him. He talks about one named Hymenaeus and Alexander. talks about that story of John Mark in the book of Acts where John Mark abandoned him and Barnabas. How deeply that hurt Paul. It hurt him because he knew that he needed those men. In the moment of trial, they abandoned him, and it broke his heart because he knew that he needed them. And here in the book of Ephesians, Paul finds himself in prison, and he's alone. He's in chains. And at the end of his letter, he says, pray also for me. That whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. He knows, he knows, maybe even more in this particular moment when he's all alone in prison. He knows maybe in this particular moment more than ever how much he needs other people. We need one another. If we're going to win... The spiritual battle, we must do it together. So That's the first point, we must do it together. And secondly, we must do it in prayer. We must do it in prayer. Prayer reminds us that at the end of the day, the battle is God's battle and not ours. And isn't that a happy thing? God is the one who will win this battle against the evil one. And prayer is the act of standing together with him and saying, I am fighting this battle not on my own, but with you. And so what I'd like for us to do here for the next 10 minutes or so is to spend some time in prayer together. I would encourage you... Um, If you know or maybe even if you don't know the person that's next to you or behind you, um, feel free to join together with them. If you simply want to pray on your own, that's okay too, but I encourage you to pray with others. We're going to pray today uh, for for our marriages in our church. We're going to pray today for our children. We're going to pray also for our relationships with our neighbors and our coworkers, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so... As you are praying right now for the next couple of minutes, I invite you to to pray for uh, the marriages in our church. Pray for ones that you may know of that are struggling. If you don't know of any, if you uh, aren't aware of ones that are are struggling in one way or another, that's fine. You can pray more generally, but pray uh, right now with the person next to you or the person behind you or in front of you or simply on your own. Let's spend some time praying for the marriages in our church. Let's pray for our our children now. Uh, Sims asked me to give you all a challenge. A couple months ago, you were given a keychain by... Some of you were given keychains by one of our children, and he he wanted to ask, have you been praying for your kid that gave you that keychain? And uh, Lord, if you haven't, that you would uh, do that now, and that you would even renew your commitment to praying for that child. And I would encourage you today that after the service today, that you go find that child and and ask them how they're doing or give them a call this week and pray for them. Uh, But right now, for a couple minutes, would you pray for our kids as they go to school, as they wrestle with what it means to grow up in our world today, uh, that you would pray for God's uh, protection and strength for them. I invite you to pray for Uh, relationships that you know of that are hurting and broken, maybe it's in your own life or maybe in friends or family around you, uh, that you would spend time praying for God's healing and reconciliation in those relationships. God in heaven, I thank you that you have heard the prayers of your people. We admit to you today that we have no power in and of ourselves to heal our relationships with you or with other people or even with ourselves. And so, God, we offer ourselves and our church community to you. Lord, our marriages and our children, our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ, with our neighbors, with our co-workers. Lord, I pray that you would make us a people who know our enemy, who know where the real battle is fought, and who know how to fight it the right way. Lord, I thank you for your people today and for their prayers that they have offered in spiritual battle with one another. God, I pray that it would bear much fruit in our lives and in our church and in our relationships. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.